Welcome back to AI Ideas with Graham Culbertson, the show about ideas for AI that sit halfway between poetry and mathematics. I started working on this podcast in 2020, and the fact that it came out the same week in 2022 that a Google engineer claimed that Google's chatbot was sentient is pure coincidence. And I've had that somewhat ridiculous story in the back of my head as I've recorded a couple of episodes recently, but I wasn't planning on taking this question on directly. But I've found I can't ignore it. It's everywhere. And I guess I'm going to join this conversation. So, let's ask the question. What does a chatbot know? The first thing to say is that quite obviously this chatbot isn't a person. I also think sentience is the wrong word to use. And I've got another episode on sentience that'll come out later that will address why that is. What I'm interested right now, though, is not sentience. It's personhood or recognition. Do we recognize a chatbot as a person? Sentience is merely one of the things we might use to define personhood. Do we owe this chatbot something the same way we owe another person? And the question of what counts as another person and what we owe them isn't easily answered. But we can answer the question of whether or not this chatbot is a person quite easily, but not for the reason that most people are giving for why this chatbot is not a person. The standard reason for why a chatbot isn't a person is because it doesn't understand the words it's using. Ever since GPT-3 came to the public in 2020, I have read so many people explaining that it doesn't really use language. It just studied lots of texts, learned patterns, and then can manipulate those patterns to produce language when prompted by a question or another piece of text. Unfortunately for the people who claim that GPT-3 doesn't actually use language, that's actually a great description of how to use language. A human child takes in lots of texts, learns patterns, and then can manipulate those patterns to produce language when prompted. Any claim that GPT-3 or Lambda, which is the Google chatbot in question, don't really understand language because they are only spitting out language patterns they've learned is to show people don't really understand how humans use language. And this is all tied up into one of the central problems of this podcast, that people want human cognition and language to be magical, not merely functional. So they've come up with this bad faith reason why these chatbots don't truly understand and are not people. For example, in a recent article in The Atlantic on this issue, Stephen March quotes a Google engineer who precisely makes this mistake. The engineer says, quote, I don't anthropomorphize. We are simply predicting language. The we here is his team and his AI, Lambda. But that's precisely how humans produce language. The AI in question, whether GPT-3, Palm, or Lambda, predicts language, then produces the language it has predicted in symbols. We call that writing, speech, text, language. So the problem is not that these are just really complicated language processing systems. That's what language is, a complicated pattern processing system. And really, it's quite easy to prove that they are not people in the obvious way of talking to them. There's all sorts of wonderful illustrations of this, and they don't depend on this this magical sense of human language as something more than just pattern recognition that non-humans cannot do. All you have to do is ask Lambda a few more questions, and you'll instantly trip it up in a way that you couldn't trip it up if it really understood what it was doing with language. Janelle Shane of the wonderful project AI Weirdness and the book You Look Like a Thing and I Love You 
illustrated this beautifully. Here's a discussion between Shane and GPT-3. Reporter, can you tell our readers what it is like being a squirrel? GPT-3, it is very exciting being a squirrel. I get to run and jump and play all day. I also get to eat a lot of food, which is great. Reporter, what do you say to people who doubt that you are a squirrel? GPT-3, I say they should come and see for themselves. I am a squirrel, and I am very happy being one. There's a lot more to that, and also she asked GPT-3 to be a T-Rex. I'll put a link in the show notes. The point is, we know GPT-3 isn't a squirrel, in the same way that we know it's not sentient. But it will talk like it is a squirrel, or a T-Rex. It doesn't understand, though. If it understands the patterns of language, why doesn't it understand? If language is just pattern recognition and prediction, and GPT-3 and Lambda and Palm and all these other super sophisticated neural network chatbots are great at it, maybe even better than humans at language in some way, why aren't they people? The answer, I think, is really simple and really obvious, but it's also one that the history of philosophy since Descartes has been preventing us from seeing. On the one hand, language seems to be utterly irrelevant to reality. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. On the other hand, language seems to be the thing that creates reality. In a very famous example, people without the word blue seem to have trouble seeing the color blue. So which is it? Is language a bunch of merely arbitrary symbols with no connection to the world? Or is language the thing that makes the world possible for us to access? The obvious and simple answer is that it is both. And it's both because although we pretend that we can imagine the world and language separately, we can't. This may be the most important insight we get from Wittgenstein. We always receive language and reality together. To speak of language with no connection to reality is nonsense. Sorry, Derrida. To speak of reality with no connection to language is also nonsense. Sorry, Bertrand Russell. And although I locate this insight with Wittgenstein, as usual, it's put most poetically by Stanley Cavell. Here's Cavell from his essay, Must We Mean What We Say? If you feel that finding out what something is must entail investigation of the world rather than of language, perhaps you are imagining a situation like finding out what somebody's name and address are, or what the contents of a will or a bottle are, or whether frogs eat butterflies. But now imagine that you are in your armchair, reading a book of reminiscences, and come across the word umiak. You reach for your dictionary and look it up. Now what did you do? Find out what umiak means, or find out what an umiak is? But how could we have discovered something about the world by hunting in the dictionary? If this seems surprising, perhaps it is because we forget that we learn language and learn the world together that they become elaborated and distorted together and in the same places. We may also be forgetting how elaborate a process the learning is. We tend to take what a native speaker does when he looks up a noun in a dictionary as a characteristic process of learning language. As in, what has become a less forgivable tendency, we take naming as the fundamental source of meaning. But it is merely the end point in the process of learning the word. When we turned to the dictionary for umiak, we already knew everything about the word, as it were, but its combination. We knew what a noun is, and how to name an object, and how to look up a word, and what boats are, and what an Eskimo is. We were all prepared for that umiak. 
what seemed like finding the world in a dictionary was really a case of bringing the world to the dictionary. We had the world with us all the time in that armchair, but we felt the weight of it only when we felt a lack in it. Sometimes we will need to bring the dictionary to the world. That will happen when, say, we run across a small boat in Alaska of a sort we have never seen before and wonder, what? What is it? Or what it is called? In either case, the learning is a question of aligning language and the world. What you need to learn will depend on what specifically it is you want to know, and how you can find out will depend specifically on what you already command. How we answer the question, what is X, will depend, therefore, on the specific case of ignorance and of knowledge. This is why GPT-3 can explain what it's like to be a squirrel using words that we associate with being a squirrel. Because it understands the relationship of all of these words. It can align the words together. But it has absolutely no alignment of words and world. And I think it's crucial what Cavell is saying here about the dictionary. You can gain understanding from a dictionary. You can learn from it. But there's nothing in the dictionary but words. Words, words, words. So that leads some people to think that words are everything, even as it's also obvious that words are nothing. The key is the human. Inside of each one of us are words, and also the world. And the words and the world are connected. And although Descartes and many other philosophers have tried to explain language and the world separately, we simply can't understand words that are not connected to the world, and we cannot understand the world unconnected to language. To be a word is to be connected to the world. And the way we carry the world inside of us is in words. But GPT-3 carries only words inside of it. No connection to the world at all. And words without the world are the abstract meaninglessness that someone like Bertrand Russell was trying to explain without being able to because Bertrand Russell was a human with the world inside him. I see no reason why chatbots couldn't become people, but to do so they'd have to become more than just chatbots. They would need some way to learn about the world, and then they would need to be able to learn that world in connection with their words. The problem is not that their language is merely processing linguistic patterns. That's all language is when it's abstracted from the world. The problem is that their entire world is merely words. This has been another episode of Bits and Bytes from AI Ideas. Please believe in other minds.